So John chapter 15, verses 1 to 17. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be complete and that my joy will be in you. My command is this, love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you my servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you Ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love one another. Well, thank you, Tony, and uh, everyone else involved in, uh, in our service this morning. Good morning, church. Uh, lovely to see you all, and it's really good to be here. Well, these are absolutely beautiful words, are they not? And what a great way of hearing them in the two different ways that we have this morning. Um, these are words that Jesus spoke to his disciples uh, in this unique section in John's Gospel uh, from chapter 14 through to about 17, where he's speaking to them in a, uh, in a uh, it's, like, it's like an insight into this intimate conversation uh, between God in the flesh and his first group of faithful followers. And we get to hear it and we get to be reminded of what that intimate conversation means for us as Jesus' disciples that have continued on from then. So the disciples are here, they're with Jesus um, in this moment, and there's only 11 of them now, as we know Judas has uh, left to go and do uh, what he needed to do, as Jesus put it, and that was to uh, betray Jesus into the hands of his enemies. He's gone, the 11 others are there with Jesus, 
And unlike the religious leaders who uh, couldn't understand Jesus, unlike the political leaders who, who couldn't understand Jesus, um, who saw him as a threat uh, to their power, both religious power and political power, unlike them, these disciples do get Jesus. They've, it's taken them a while, and for the most part, they understand there's something about him that they can trust, there's something about him that is unique, there's something about him that they, that they need to follow and understand more of. And so they're sitting under his authority, they're listening to him uh, unpack some beautiful truths, some beautiful insights into God's kingdom, into uh, what it means to follow Jesus as disciples, and that's what we get to hear in this first half of chapter 15 in John's Gospel. It's beautiful because, in, in, in short, it's about relationship with Jesus. That's what this is about. It's about relationship with Jesus. Uh, it's about love for each other, how that relationship spills out in the way that we, we love one another as followers of Jesus. Incidentally, uh, the love here for others, go and love each other, love one another, isn't talking about a love for everybody, a love in the whole world, although there's certainly that's what we're called to do. But this is about how first and foremost we are to love above all else one another as the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters in Christ in the same way God has loved us in Christ. Uh, it, it, it's, about, um, it's about doing good works, doing good things, producing fruit, doing this in response to God's love towards us. It's about community. It's about our mission uh, as God's people. It's about our purpose in this world, why he's called us out and sent us back in to, to his world uh, for those who claim to follow Jesus. Well, I want to say this morning, and I, I know nearly all of us, perhaps most of us here, uh, are those who have professed a desire and a willingness to follow Jesus. Um, this is one of those chapters worth committing to memory. I've already heard this morning that it's one particular person, it's one of the most preached passages, one particular uh, person in our, in our church family has heard. It's a, it's a favourite of many. And if you're not that quite, quite there yet, if you're not someone who's quite gone all in to follow Jesus, for whatever reason, well, this is a warm invitation to sit and listen and to hear something beautiful from the words of Jesus. So that's, um, that's our prayer this morning. Father, I, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, speak to us. Help us to be in that room, as we've heard already, listening to the words of your Son, Jesus. And speak to us as each one has need this morning, I pray, in his name. Well, if we were to summarise the chapter, and you shouldn't give the end before you started, should you? But if we were to summarise it, True disciples of Jesus abide or remain in an intimate, life-giving, fruit-producing relationship with their Lord and Saviour. That's what Jesus is trying to get across here. True disciples of him will abide in an intimate, life-giving, fruit-producing relationship with their Lord and Saviour. And I've got to say right at the start, this, this, uh, this passage challenges every single one of us, all different kinds of people. Now, we're made up of all different types. Of, we've got different temperaments. We've got different ways of learning and understanding. We've got different things that push our buttons, and some of us have buttons and others don't have buttons, and uh, there's a whole thing in between. But if I was just to summarise a couple, this, this is a passage that challenges those of us who perhaps tend to be a bit legalistic. And that is, you know, it's sometimes because of our temperament, other times because of misunderstanding, um, we, we look for the rules, just tell me the rules, I'll do the rules, I'll tick the box, and then I'll be right, and then I'll turn around and watch everyone else who doesn't, and make sure that they're right. That's what it sort of means to be legalistic, okay? 
But this is a challenge to those who are legalistic because it tells us that Christianity is not actually about judgment. It's not about obeying laws. It's not about doing good deeds in order to perform, to impress God. But rather it's about knowing and living in a relationship with God made possible through Jesus. It doesn't matter how much church you go to, how much Bible memorization you might do, or how much community service you engage in, or good thoughts you have about others, none of that matters if you don't have a personal understanding, a relationship, an intimate connection with your Creator, which is impossible for us in our own strength, by the way. Our world is full of people and all sorts of attempts to try, and we fail miserably, and Jesus was the only one in his full humanness uh, who who achieved um, personal communion with the Creator because he was, in fact, the Creator himself in human form. So this, this passage is going to challenge those of us who are legalistic. It's also going to challenge another group of us, and that is those who are perhaps spiritualistic. I know that's not a word, but sort of spiritual-type people. You know what I mean? By They're the ones that go, yeah, I do, I get that. You know, it's all about me and Jesus. It's all about my personal connection with Jesus, and that's all it's about. I'm on another plane. I don't know what you guys go on about. The rest of you, you carnal Christian, we come up with all these adjectives to describe other Christians who aren't as spiritual as us. Um, These are the people who who, who are more than happy to meditate and commune intimately with God, solely and wholly, by themselves. Without being too disparaging, you know, kind of often seemingly detached, sort of floating on clouds, exploring deep spiritual truths and insights. But this text challenges uh, that kind of focus too, because it says that true connection with God will actually lead to a transformed and engaged life in this, in this life, here and now, with our feet firmly on the ground, um, relating to other people, producing fruit, which is uh, not just spiritual goodness and good vibes, but it's, it's um, love for people, love for those that we might consider even unlovable, love for those that we can't, humanly speaking, possibly love, but love that we uh, can have for others because we're obedient to Christ and responsive to his love for us. So this passage also challenges a third group, And that might be those of us who have given up the fight a little bit. You know, the fight against all the struggles we have, the the sin, our rebellion, our human natures that kind of cause us to doubt, question. Nothing wrong with doubting and questioning, but, you know, those natures that go, I I don't don't want, I'm not going to submit to Jesus. I know about him and I hope it's true. And if it's true, I'm happy to go to church a bit and say I'm a Christian, but uh, I'm just not fully in. it challenges that kind of mindset too because it starts off with a warning. Those first few passages are a warning. Uh, they're a warning. They tell us that God is actually a righteous judge, unlike us. You know, you know people say religious people, Christians, they're all so judgmental. Well, they shouldn't be. But we do serve a God who is a righteous judge and only he can judge because he's God. We can't judge because the minute we start judging, we, we put ourselves under that judgment because we too are just like everyone else. But God, he's not like us. He's perfect and he's holy. And so he can judge and he does judge and the Bible describes him and demonstrates him as, reveals him to us as a righteous judge. He gets it right every time. And so there's hope in the midst of this warning that in Jesus we've been given this life-giving saviour, this saviour who can rescue us, who can turn us away from ourselves, away from that struggle, away from that apathy to even give up struggling and to trust him and rely upon him. So let's look at this teaching together. 
Uh, the first part we're going to look at, uh, we're going to look at two parts. The first part is uh, the metaphor that Jesus uses of the vineyard, the vine, the branches and the gardener. And the second part is the idea of what it actually means to be connected to the vine, to, to abide in Jesus, to remain in him. And, and what, what is this fruit um, that is produced in the Christian lives we live? So first of all, the vine and the branches. This is found in the first uh, eight verses we'll be looking at. Jesus uses this um, rather helpful image, I think. It's, it's very helpful. It's very clear for us. Um, you don't have to be a vinerist. Uh, I'm making up words now. A vineyard specialist. Um, I know there's a horticultural term for it. I just can't think of it. Uh, you may be one who really enjoys um, benefiting from the produce of vineyards. Um, that's one thing. But this is another thing. We, we, we can, for the most part, we can picture that, we can understand that image, and that's pretty well the same image of the same kinds of trees that existed when Jesus is using this metaphor. You've got there uh, the, um, the actual vine, and then off the vine comes the branches, and the branches are there to produce fruit. And in the metaphor, there are only those three things. There's the vine... Um, there's the gardener and then there's the branches. And we're going to have a look at each one in turn. First of all, the vine. What's Jesus saying here? Well, right at the start, he says, I am the vine. In this metaphor, he says, that's me. I am the vine. Uh, and um, what's important about that phrase is you may remember, what does that sound like? Does it sound like to you six other phrases Jesus has used previously? Now, you'll have to throw your minds back to... Uh, end of last year sometime when we were last in John's gospel and we last we went through all six of the I am statements that Jesus makes this is the seventh and the final I am the vine and it's very profound he's not just explaining that he's he's that symbol um, he's doing something else here remember I am is a term used exclusively for God uh, the God of Israel, when he revealed himself to Moses at that burning bush. And, you know, who are you, says Moses. And uh, the voice said, I am. I am that I am. I am who I am. That's, I just am. I'm God. And, and Jesus uses that intentionally. I am uh, the bread, he says in chapter 6. I am the light of the world, he says in chapter 8. I am the gate. I'm the only one through whom anyone can come into the fold of God, into God's family. It's through me. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I'm the one that loves the sheep and cares for uh, the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life, he would say in chapter 11, predicting what was about to happen. And uh, I am the way, the truth and the life, as uh, Evan shared with us a couple of Sundays ago from chapter 14. And Jesus here is explicitly again identifying himself as the God of Israel. But there is a little bit of difference in this last statement. Uh, he's not just identifying with the God of Israel, but he's doing something extra. He's actually identifying with Israel itself or herself. Because right throughout the Old Testament, time and time again, this same metaphor is used to describe Israel. They are God's vine. That's who Israel uh, were to be. And right throughout the Old Testament in several places, they're, they're chosen, they've been loved to fulfill a purpose for God in the world. And you'll notice how Jesus says here that he's the true vine. He's putting himself in contrast with this vine that he's come to fulfill, to complete, and essentially to replace. The vine that Israel was supposed to be failed miserably. The vine that Israel was supposed to be in the world fell short, just like we all do, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, and well, that's everyone. You see, God set the nation of Israel apart 
uh, for this one purpose of making his name great among the nations, to be a light to the Gentiles. And Israel was supposed to do that. They were supposed to connect lost people, the lost peoples of the world, all the nations around them. They were supposed to be the beacon, the pathway through whom people could come to faith in God as well. To be a blessing, they were called to be a blessing to all the nations and a beacon to them. But they got distracted, just like all people do, and they fell short. They failed. Just quickly, it's not on your screen, but it's certainly in your Bibles. Um, Just a summary of one of the prophets, Hosea chapter 10. This is what he says um, in verses 1 to 2. How prosperous Israel is. A luxuriant vine loaded with fruit. But the richer the people get, the more pagan altars they build. The more beautiful their harvest, the more beautiful their sacred pillars. Sacred pillars weren't set up to worship God. They were sacred items and totem poles and things that they set up and took from other gods, small g, from other nations. So the more bountiful their harvest, the more God, the real God provides, the more beautiful they build these sacred, idolatrous pillars. The hearts of the people are fickle, says Hosea. They are guilty and they must be punished. The Lord will break down their altars and smash their sacred pillars. So Jesus comes along at this point. He says, I'm the true Israel. I'm the vine. I'm the better Israel. What they were supposed to be doing was really pointing to what I'm actually doing. They were never only a precursor to the real thing. Uh, that's all they, so that is all they ever were. I, he says, am here now. So Jesus, he's the vine. And he's the true Israel. He is the salvation plan that God has for the whole world. And it centers on him and him alone. That's what this is about. Now, I just want to say at this point, if you're ever someone who, um, who reads passages like this and you feel another sense of guilt, you sit there even as a Christian and you think, oh, that's right, fruit. I've got to now bear fruit. I haven't borne fruit for a while. Um, and we can start feeling, feeling guilty. That, that's not the purpose of this. This is this, like most of the scriptures, nearly all of them, aren't about us. Even though it's talking about us, they're about Jesus and what he's done for us. So keep that in mind. No room for guilt, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, right? So hear it, guilt-free. Hear it, condemnation-free. Hear it as being about Jesus and what he's done. It's always about him, and that's why each week, um, that's why we do what we do. It's why we do it the way we do it. We preach through the teachings of Jesus. We preach through God's word, and we try and do it in, in a flow that it sort of doesn't get taken out of context or used and abused willy-nilly to push any agenda that we might have for our church. Uh, We're sitting under the authority of God's word and we're listening and relying on him to speak to us. The the, the Bible is what reveals to us Jesus from start to finish. So it's all about him. Well, the second uh, character in this metaphor is is the gardener. Is the gardener. Some of your Bibles might say um, the, uh, the, the vine grower, I think it is. It's a different word there, but same, same word. Um, the gardener, let's make it simple. I'm the tr- true vine and my father, he says, is the gardener. So the father is God the father. He's the one who tends the vine. Now what we know about vine and vine tending is this, that a, a gardener who's, who oversees the vine, right, their priority is always concerned with the productivity of that vine and the health of it. That, that, that's what it's about. It's how fruitful the vine was. And so he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit He, the gardener, takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he, the gardener, prunes that it might bear more fruit. Did you notice something really interesting there about these two kinds of branches, which we'll get to in a moment? Did you notice it? Regardless of what state a branch is in, 
So a healthy branch that's connected to the vine and an unhealthy branch that is on the vine but not actually abiding, remaining connected to the vine. Whether it's being fruitful or not, the gardener is going to do something relatively painful. The gardener is going to act to help the vine reach its maximum fruitfulness. That's his priority. Verse 8 says so at the end of this little bit we're looking at. By this, my father is glorified. How? That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The gardener's goal here is to see this vine produce fruit and that's God's goal for our life, those of us who seek to follow Jesus. It's what he's calling us into in this chapter, to bear fruit. As he looks on those who are in Christ bearing fruit, he's pleased, he's honoured and he's glorified. The vine is Jesus, the perfect Israel. The gardener is God the Father. So what about the branches? Well, verses uh, 5 to 6 there tell us that uh, those claiming to be disciples, in fact down to verse 8, those claiming to be disciples of Jesus are the branches. So that's you and that's me. Those of us who are gathered here this morning. And it tells us again that there are two kinds. There are those that bear fruit and there are those that do not bear fruit. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he says, let's say it again, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Notice something here. Notice how the gardener prunes the branches that do bear fruit. Why does he do that? Well, he wants them to produce more fruit. He cuts away maybe some extra limbs. He cuts away those uh, that are dying, the dying leaves. The best example I could use in my own life um, in gardening are yucca trees. I'm a genius, a green thumb, at growing yucca trees. Some of you have contributed to that because sometimes early when we first moved into the house, I sort of chop off a little branch and you just get a bit of dirt and you go like that and you come back a few years later and you've got a yucca tree. It's great. Huge success at gardening. But even in those, and it's a terrible metaphor really because they've really only got leaves, but you get the sense. You know, the leaves down the bottom begin to die and they, they drop off and they look horrible and everything. And Well, that's what I do. I prune them. I, I, I take them off, cut them off. And what it does, it gives a new sense of vibrancy to the branches that are doing what they're supposed to be doing or to the leaves that are doing what they're supposed to be doing. But that's what God the gardener does here. He prunes the branches, uh, even the ones that bear fruit. Which means that if you're a Christian, the Lord is not done with you. God is going to continue refining and shaping and transforming you. I've got to tell you, this is an interesting thing in pastoral care. When you hear of people and the struggles they're going through and the struggles you go through in your own life, um, we always come at them as if we're either surprised, shocked, um, feel like we're something like, you know, it's a bit unfair, there's been a bit of injustice, I can't believe this has happened to me, a little bit victimised. You know, the last thing I often think about is, hang on, I'm a Christian, I'm in the vine, I'm connected to Jesus. What is the gardener doing in my life? What is he doing through this? Not he's caused it so I can blame him, you know, atheists that love the excuse of a God they don't believe in to blame for everything wrong with the world. That's not who we are. We trust, we believe him, but we never ask the question. Well, we, we take a long time to ask the question. Well, what's God doing in my life here? What, how can I grow? How, what, what, how, does this, how is this like pruning? As horrible as it is, as what I don't want to have gone through, what is it that, that I need to do to work on, to dig in deeper to Jesus and understand what God the Father is doing in my life? It's a discipline thing. It hurts. It, it makes us uncomfortable, but it's necessary. 
for our growth. In the same way, um, the uh, writer to the Hebrews talks about it in chapter 12, about, um, he sort of says, it's, hard, it's a hard metaphor to go with these days, um, it used to be universally understood, Parents discipline their kids, right? A father disciplines their child, you know? And we, we all go, yeah, of course. We don't all go, yeah, of course, today. But um, the, the point is, the, the, the disciplining is to shape, is to guide and direct, which means, you know, holding back, guiding, shaping, directing. And, and, um, and Hebrews chapter 12 quotes from the Proverbs and says, you know, don't despise the discipline of your father in the same way you oughtn't despise the discipline of your worldly fathers don't despise the discipline of your heavenly father for it's for your own good it's for your own growth growth and the difference here of course is what he's our he's the perfect father he's the perfect father he's not like the rest of us as human fathers who all of us are not perfect but there's a, another branch isn't there not just the branch that bears fruit the second branch is the one that does not bear fruit and this type is in the warning part of this passage. It's taken away by the gardener. Verse verse 6 makes it clear. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, they're thrown into the fire, and they're burned. Well, what's this? What does it mean here? What does it mean that a Christian, um, maybe it means that a Christian isn't performing well, that there's a benchmark God has. He's got a, a ledger. And he's counting, he's looking at the fruit, he's weighing it up. You know, we've always got to be careful when Jesus uses metaphors, any metaphor, is not to push the metaphor beyond what Jesus is using it for. And we do that terribly as Christians. In fact, I can tell you right now, this passage has nothing to do with hell. Do you know why I know that? Because the word Hades and any reference to it is not even mentioned. It's a metaphor. So we're not talking here about uh, two different um, kinds of Christians... This is where we need to be careful not to press the metaphor too far. Jesus isn't saying there's pruned fruitful ones and then there's discarded unfruitful ones. He's saying that there are fruitful believers and then there are believers who probably aren't. This is why it's a warning. He's saying there's only one kind of Christ follower and that is the kind that bears fruit. It's what brings glory to God. It proves our following of Jesus, our Closeness to Jesus. One kind of Christian, the Christian that bears fruit. There are lots of people who claim Jesus, but they may not be bearing fruit. And such a person has no reason to believe that they are one. And they're actually in spiritual danger. It's like a branch that's kind of on the vine, but it's dead wood. Um, It's just hanging on, but there's no life in it. It, it's, It's become disconnected. No longer attached to the source, which is Jesus. But Jesus does remind us, he reminds these disciples in front of him, that they are true believers. And this is what he says in verse 3. He says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. That's what he's saying to them. He's reassuring them. He's warning them and reassuring them. And he's doing the same to us. He's warning us and he's reassuring us. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. You know, we don't just say, read your Bible and listen to Jesus and meditate on his scriptures for nothing. You know, there's a reason why church leaders and, and, and energised, connected Christians encourage one another to do that. Is because that's how, that's how we know, that's how we become fruitful. You don't have to try and become fruitful, you just focus on Jesus, as we'll see in a minute. Become clean because of the word that he's spoken 
to his disciples. This is God's word, the words of Jesus. It's what we focus on and we are cleansed and we become healthy and we won't become unhealthy because we're cleansed and because we're, we're connected to the vine. You see how it works? This is where Jesus protects, by the way, against the thinking that we need to produce fruit to save ourselves. Some people attach themselves to the vine. You may, you may have started out like this in your Christian journey. If you're so enthusiastic about it, you shove yourself into the, you graft yourself into the vine and you go, right, right, uh, fruit producing. I'm going I'm to go and get my bullhorn and go in the street corners. I'm going to preach and proclaim. And I had a mate that did this with a ladder on a, on a median strip. Uh, guess which state he's from? <laughs> Queensland. Um, anyway gets up there and, and he, he, would, he was being groomed about how to, um, or mentored, how to um, preach fire and brimstone to save people in, in, hope, in the hope of producing fruit. It's getting it around the wrong way. His motives was to do something, try and produce fruit, rather than trusting the fact that the fruit is produced by Jesus in and through us. No, Jesus is telling the disciples here why they're clean. It's because of his work. It's because of his word in their lives, not because of theirs. He's the saviour. He's the one who bears fruit through us. Now, I know some of us, um, because we all fall into this trap, we're trying to produce fruit ourselves, to earn favour, to gain a closer connection with God, or even to just convince ourselves of our own salvation. And it's a fine line. It's about letting go of all that and actually trusting and relying on God and then maybe one day seeing some fruit and even trusting the results of the fruit to God because he's the one that sees it from his perspective in the big picture. Well, if it is all about Jesus, if Jesus is the one that has secured our salvation by his death and he's called us to believe in him and remain in him and abide in him, it's, it's not about us but about him in us, then what is our role as disciples? What should the fruit-producing branch do? This is the point of this passage. Abide, remain, continue. That's what the word means. Continue in, grafted in firmly, connected to the vine. Verse 4, remain in me as I also remain in you. That's what the word means. Stay put, put down your roots, set up shop, get comfortable Hold on and don't let go. Jesus is saying that true disciples are invited, in fact, they're commanded to remain in an intimate relationship with him. This is one of my favourite images in all of scripture, actually, because it destroys what I'd really like Christianity to be. Think about this. Think about what you would really like. In your humanness, what would you really like Christianity to be? I want the Christian life to be about how good a person can get. Wouldn't it be a lot easier if it was just about self-improvement? Because all you've got to do is find a handful of people that you're better than, and you've made it, right? <laughs> or what about this? Um, what about just living a life avoiding all trouble? Just not getting involved in anything, just sitting back, I'm not going to confront, I'm not going to speak out, I'm not going to challenge, I'm just going to be a good person, I'm just going to fly under the radar. Wouldn't you like Christianity to be that? Some Christians do. Um, or what about this? What about, it's like, I'm going to become so smart, so intelligent, I'm going to read the scriptures, I'm going to study them, I'm going to get all the theology worked out, I'm going to pick the right theology, and then I'm going to let everyone know how smart I am. Well, these few short words from Jesus blows all of that up, right? It really does. It invites you, it invites me to exchange all that 
all this performance-orientated, knowledge-obsessed Christianity for something as simple as a trusting, reliant, dependent, personal relationship with God, one that's intimate and one that is life-giving, knowing God, walking with Jesus. And he says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Well, that's the first part. The second part is a lot quicker, so don't worry. Uh, And that is, what does it mean to actually abide? What does it mean to remain uh, in Jesus? It's about abiding in Jesus and and, and the fruit. And we see this here in uh, the second part, John chapter 15, verses 9 to 18. Well, firstly, and there are four things. Firstly, in Jesus, abiding in him means living in obedience to him. He says uh, there, As the Father has loved me, verses 9 to 11, so have I loved you. Now remain or abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Isn't that beautiful? We all want joy and we look in all the wrong places for it. Just as it is between God the Father and Jesus the Son, that exact intimate close relationship of complete and utter joy of fulfilment, so it is between Jesus the Son and us, his disciples. We abide in his love by choosing to obey his commands. And his commandments are really easy. You know, the long list of Jewish commandments that they added on to and teased out and even God's holy standard was like, how do we keep up with that? Jesus comes and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. And the second is like this, love others as yourself. So he he really summarised the commands. His commands are two things, love God and love others. And if we do that, if we choose to obey that, that's living the way, that's the way of life that he desires for us. It doesn't mean that we keep his love by being obedient. It doesn't mean we, we make up some rules and then Look, look, God, look what I've done, you know, like, like we do at school. It's not like that with God at all. It's something that we experience. We experience the fullness of his love because our disobedience can no longer get in the way. It's a little bit like this for a rough illustration, okay? You're driving somewhere in the car and you obey the road rules, right? You don't even have to think about it. You go, yeah, they're the road rules, cool, it's what I'll do. And it's actually, it can be a joyful experience. And the reason why it can be a joyful experience, just driving to the road rules, this is what I found, it took a while, but I eventually found it, is that um, when a police car suddenly pops up or pops out or you see, you know, they make them grey now, have you noticed that? Some of them have got this sort of road-coloured grey so you can't really see them. Um, when that pops up, you don't even so much as blink, blink an eye. Your heart doesn't even skip a beat. Why? Because you're in perfect relationship with the law. You have nothing to worry about because your disobedience of the road rules isn't getting in the way of a great drive. If you're someone that, that speeds and does, or despises the law or just ignores the law, whatever it might be, and I know some people can't help that. I do, I get that. I've met people like that. They actually can't help it. They're not being rebellious. They just, that's just who they are. They're just oblivious all the time and just, have, don't, just don't get the rules and they get caught out. You look at how nervous a person is like that, right? And you might be one of them. You drive, you're, it's a police car. And then you check, what was I doing? What what speed am I doing? Because you have no idea whether you're in with the rules or not. That's a little bit like what Jesus is saying here. Being um, in in um, in Jesus means being obedient to the law of love. That's what it means. Our obedience to what God desires, his law of love, is the setting for enjoyment 
and joy and to be able to experience the fullness of his love. Secondly, um, we abide with the body of Christ in love for one another, for each other. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that they lay down their life for their friends. We can all picture that, can't we? That image. We all love those stories when we hear of it. Self-sacrifice to the point of death so that someone else might live. You are my friend, says Jesus, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what the master's doing, but I have called you friends for all that I've heard from my father. I have made known to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is how everyone will know that we're disciples. Not by our good works, because anyone can do good works. Everyone does do good works, religious people and non-religious people. Not by how much we preach or shove our political and moral convictions down people's throats. Not by any judgmental attitudes or actions that we might have, but by our love for one another. It's the same kind of self-sacrificing love that Jesus showed all of us when he gave up his life. There's no greater act of selflessness than sacrificing your own life so that someone else can live their life. And none of us do that to the point of death, do we? Well, an essential aspect of being a fruitful branch, a fruitful disciple in the gospel, is loving the community that God has placed us in, loving the whole vineyard, all the branches, And we share it not because it's easy or convenient, sharing our love for one another. It's not because it comes naturally to us. We abide with the body of Christ in love because Jesus first loved us. The third thing that abiding means is this. We get to abide in the grace of Christ as we serve in mission. You did not choose me, says Jesus, but I chose you. And I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. It's not just about the fruit in our own lives it's about us bearing fruit in seeing others become grafted into the vine you receive God's grace so that you can proclaim grace towards others something you've been given for free surely you are able to give away for free so to abide in Christ means making disciples of others holding out the great news of hope and salvation and love for all people well the fourth thing is this We get to abide in the power of Christ by his word and in prayer. You know, twice, and you may have picked up the verse, uh, the verses there. Twice in this passage, we're called to ask the Father for something, ask the Father of something. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Earlier in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Right. Now, how many people have seen something like that metaphorically? or literally, on a bumper sticker. These are one of these sort of bumper sticker sort of Bible verses, or on a fridge magnet um, somewhere. These are the sort of verses that we pluck out of our Bibles, we put up as a meme, or on a pretty picture somewhere, and and we recite it, or we can, some people, recite it as this kind of right that they now have, that we now have as Christians, this right to ask God of anything and to expect it. And I've met people that, that have uh, kind of swallowed that and, uh, and have plucked those verses out, detached them from the broader context in which they were, were spoken. And um, they're terribly bound up people, right? Like, just always struggling um, and, and confused because uh, they're asking God for stuff and they don't get it. 
right? So, so there's something wrong there. And then they go and talk about it with others who share that same belief in those verses. And they will say, well, it's because you're not believing enough. Or you're not, you know, because God's, God's perfect, right? So you're obviously not believing enough. You've got to try harder, which is terrible. Or you meet a person who's like that who's awfully arrogant um, and, you know, sort of can tell you all these great stories about God coming through for them and their personal needs because they asked God whatever they wanted and God did it. Let me just say this. I've used this metaphor before. Make no mistake, God is not a sky fairy. God is not a genie in a bottle. He is far more dangerous and far more loving than that. That's not what he is. That's what we would like him to be. <laughs> That's not what he is. That's not who he is. He's to be revered. He's to be respected. Yet he's kind and he's compassionate. And he's loving enough to send Jesus to become one of us, to save us from our sins and bring us back in right relationship. So what is it? What does he mean here? What might we want to be asking of a God who is like that? both terrifyingly dangerous and majestically loving and compassionate and kind all at the same time. Well, given all these verses, I think a good start would be to ask him to give us the strength and courage to love others, right? To, to produce fruit, to say, I can't do it. You said so, Jesus, but I love you and I, I'm spending time with you and please bear fruit in and through me for your glory and your glory alone. Maybe we could ask something like that of that kind of God. I think, I think that's what he's getting at here. Um, it doesn't come easy to love others, e even, even Christians, right? Uh, if you look around, I've said this before, if you look around in our gathering here, any church gathering, I, hear, I heard it again this week, not, not with our church, another church, someone said, you know, I ordinarily would not be hanging out with any of these people, um, this, this believer as part of this church said. And I said, that's right, that's, that, that's, you're probably in the right church. Like, you're never going to find a church that's perfect. Um, loving people is hard, it's difficult. Um, but that's what we're called to do. That's why love's not a feeling. If you're looking for it to be a feeling, forget it. You, you'll, you'll, you'll end up loving two people, and one of those will be yourself. Um, yeah, at the most, at best. It doesn't come natural. But it's something we've got to work at. So ask God for his help. Father, please, Holy Spirit indwelling in me, the power of the resurrected Jesus living in us. Help me to love these people. Help me to love this person. Uh, help me to be uh, a fruit bearer in the way I love others and so that they might do the same. That's what it means, I think, as a great starting place to ask God of anything and he will grant it. So remain in the power of Christ by his word and in prayer. Abide, remain, continue, press on. It means embracing the uncomfortable, the pruning. It means a lot more humility and relying upon God rather than our own efforts. And it means resting in the joy, life, joyful, life-giving love that God has when we obey his commandments. What a privilege it is to be his people. What a privilege it is to know God intimately and to walk with him daily. Our Father, we thank you again this morning for these beautiful words an opportunity in these moments to have sat and listened to Jesus speaking to his disciples and taking that on board today as, as your disciples alive here and now. We thank you for your love that you've shown us in Christ. We thank you for um, the calling you've placed in our lives to be those who love others and show that same love to a world that is desperately crying out for love and acceptance and uh, understanding. 
Help us to do that in a way that doesn't um, defame your name, in a way that doesn't uh, put people off in terms of our security and confidence in you. Help us to do that in the same humble, self-sacrificing way that Jesus did towards his enemies and towards his friends. And we ask this, Father in heaven, that you would be glorified and in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.